We, the, the third guest this evening is me, in fact. Uh, <laughs> woo, so organized that I didn't have a copy of my own book. Brilliant. Somebody else had to get it. So this is, this is a copy that's got not my usual bits in that I would read, um, which is a, a good reason to read bits that I haven't read, I think. Um, so we'll see, we'll see where we get to in a minute. So there's going to be me, and I'm going to take some questions. And then we're going to have Janice, who's going to read, and we're going to take questions from you as well. Then we're going to have a wee interval, so you can have some more drinks, because that's obviously very important this evening. Um, and then we'll be having Maggie O'Farrell after the break. That sounds good, right? That does sound good. Okay. Right, so, um, so I'll, start with the, I'll start with the introduction. Um, the introduction to this book, um, which I have read out before, um, but it does introduce the book as the name suggests, which is quite useful for those of you who haven't read it. Um, Maggie and Me is my story of growing up um, in a place that is very much not like this room. Um, not that all of Glasgow is like that, of course, but, um, but, but Motherwell kind of is, actually. Um, and um, and um, so it's, it's my story of kind of growing up in the west of Scotland, um, and it's the story of how one wee boy in the west of Scotland's life was, was shaped for better and for worse um, by one woman in the west of Scotland. Um, the west of Scotland? The west of Westminster. Sorry, that's the Martinez kicking in. Here we go. It's the 12th of October, 1984. I'm just eight years old. Me and my mum are stuck to the BBC nine o'clock news in this strange new flat. We sit cross-legged on bare, cushion, on bare floorboards with coats for cushions and watch ambulances, police cars and fire engines, me more, me more, in black and white, on the portable, balancing on top of a tea chest. A flurry of dusty black bits fluttered out when I helped my mum turn it upside down and I thought tea only came in bags until this morning when the removal van came to take us to flat one, number one, Magdalen Drive, Carfin. My dad is back at number 25, Ardgar Place, Newark Hill, with a big colour telly. My wee sister, Teeny, has cried herself to sleep in my mum's lap. Our old life is crammed in the cardboard boxes bursting all around us. It's way past my bedtime, but rules are already being broken. My mum lifts an arm so I can snuggle in. She lights a regal cigarette and shakes her head at the telly, tutting and pulling me closer. I can't get close enough. Blue smoke cloaks us. Luck of the devil, she huffs, puffing away at the telly, where this blonde woman rises from rubble again and again like a cyberman off Doctor Who. All around her, the hotel is collapsing as bloody bodies are pulled out, but she stays calm. She's talking to the BBC with a man's voice, and even the police stop to listen. Life must go on as usual, she insists, as if life will do exactly what she tells it. Shit, Disney burn. Maggie won't, says my mum, smoking at the portable, puffing extra fast, super deep like it's a race. I look up at her with questioning eyes. We shouldn't be here. He doesn't like them cancer sticks, he calls them, she confides, smoothing Teenie's blonde bobbed hair with her free hand, her nails chewed to nothing. He is Logan, and according to all the arguments I've overheard, he's the man my mum is leaving my dad for. Right now he's asleep in the next room because plumbers start early. We're not to wake him. He was waiting for us in the empty flat when we arrived with all our boxes, not as tall as my dad, but not as short as my mum. He stood totally still, filling every room so we could hardly breathe. Without a word, he handed her a key, then pushed his face into hers. The wanes, she whispered, blushing and shuffling. He looked down at Teeny, then me, his mouth open, 
lips red like the inside of a cut. I held her hand tight, and all the lines round everything sharpened. I breathed right in. So I see, he said, slowly, before whipping a Stanley knife from the pocket of his blue boiler suit and slashing the top of a box. I'm Logan. The telly was first to get unpacked. The news was already on when Logan plugged it in. He thumped it hard just once, and the picture cleared to show Maggie walking away from the bombed hotel. He shook his head and changed the channel, but there she was again. Nine hours of unpacking later, and the news is still on, and Maggie is still not dead. He can't believe it. Neither can my mum. They hate her, and they say she hates Scotland, hates us. But all the people on the BBC seem glad she made it. Secretly, I am too. I don't want to see her dead. She's not done anything to me. I'd like to brush the dust from her big blonde hair like she's a girl's world and tell her it'll all be all right. Of course, I can't admit this. Bitch, I say, the worst word I know, and flinch for a scalp. But my mum says nothing, not even a God forgive you. So I'm allowed to swear about Maggie. That's how bad she is. My mum takes one last puff. I don't want her to go and sleep in that bed with him. I close my eyes as she drops her cigarette, hissing into the dregs of a cuppa, and imagine celebrating Maggie's miraculous escape with the shiny, rich-looking people on the telly. The Grand Hotel survives. So does Maggie. So will I. sweating like a whore in church. This is unbelievable. <laughs> Sorry, not a whore. A whore. <laughs> it's so nice to be in an audience where you can read a bit of the book which includes the word Wayne's because whenever you read that, I, I swear they're like, his name's not Wayne, his mum's really far gone. <laughs> which is... Which is, which is actually a thing that happens later in the book. Um, it's, it's, it's funny, we can laugh about the fact that I had to call Childline, but I called Childline and I was like, and my mum just keeps talking about the Waynes, and she's like, why does, your mother, why does your mother call you Wayne? And I'm like, you don't understand, and it's just really the well-meaning women of Surrey, you know. <laughs> they don't know what happens outside. Um, but um, anyway, so that's, that's the introduction, and that's many of the, many of the people that you need uh, to meet. Um, we're not going to dwell on the, the darker um, person in that, because it's just not the, not the space for it tonight. I just don't feel that it is. Um, but what I am going to do is introduce you to another sort of step-parent. Um, and this is a step-parent, um, and her name is Mary the Canary. Um, and that's what we used to call it her face. Um, so, <laughs> shut up, Mary the Canary. Um, and, so, and this is the chapter, and she's my dad's partner. And, um, and each chapter in this book starts with a quote from Maggie, because whether you love Maggie or whether you hate Maggie, um, Maggie gave really good quotes. Um, and one of the annoying things about this book is, is that um, I got the quotes and I thought, wow, they're really good, they're really useful, and then I got the bill from the Margaret Thatcher Foundation, because she actually copyrighted everything that she'd said in her entire life, so I had to pay. <laughs> Can you imagine I resented every penny? But it is nevertheless good quotes, good quotes. And this is a great quote. Being powerful, being powerful is like being a lady. If you have to tell people you are, you aren't. Mary the Canary lives in a cloud of perfume and colours. She's an auxiliary nurse by day and a country and western singer by night. <laughs> Bedpans and power ballads. <laughs> she is the other woman and I'm being trained to hate her even though I've never met her. 
My mum, my auntie Louisa, and my granny Mac can't stop talking about Rosemary Murray, Mary the Canary. She's been spotted coming and going from 25 Ardgar Place by Lena next door, and new furniture has been delivered. She's the lipsticked, cat-nailed everything my mum is not. My mum's never worn a skirt, but Mary is never seen in trousers, never mind the tight snow-washed jeans my mum loves. Her feet are always crammed into what my granny Mac calls helter-skelters, five-inch heels that boost her to all of five foot five. It's like her legs were made for standing on and being admired. Her ash-blonde curls glistening with Elnet hover a further five inches above her head. I'm dying to meet this dolly bird, gripped by her glamour, but I can't let on. Bottle blonde, my mum huffs furiously, bleaching the inside of a teapot that we'll all taste later. Pound shop Dolly Parton, midden, whore's handbag, she curses into the suds before shushing me for asking what a whore is. <laughs> we get to my, my dad's house and he says, there's somebody I want you to meet, he says, standing my sister down. Like Jack's magic beanstalk, my sister Teeny tendrils herself around his leg, her head just by his knee. I'm looking around the scullery, and it's cleaner than it's been since my mum left, but not as clean as she likes it. There are new things on the bunker. Parmesan cheese, salad cream, and coleslaw. Fancy things my mum passes by in the fine fair. There's a big round mirror where the cork board with our dentist appointment goes, and I'm taking all of this in when she appears. I'm Mary, she says, and it's like a film just started in my head. Her hair is the blondest and biggest I've ever seen, bigger than Maggie's even. Teeny is still clinging to my dad's leg, so I extend one hand for both of us. Her nails reach me before the rest of her fingers. <laughs> and I wonder how she feels tatties. <laughs> well, aren't we the little gent, she says, flashing Bambi eyes at my dad. From somewhere inside her, a tiny laugh escapes and it reaches me on a powerful waft of perfume I've never smelled before. And you know, I, uh, years later I discovered what it is because I smelled it on somebody in the street and I asked her what it was and she told me it was poison and I thought, perfect. <laughs> Absolutely perfect. Um, so anyway... I look down at her feet bulging just slightly from bright yellow high heels pressing into the faux terracotta linoleum my mum chose so carefully. Come on through, she says, like we don't live there anymore. And I realise we don't. Our living room has gone. All that's left from before is Charlie sitting on the swing in his cage. I dash over to make sure it's him, but he's not been replaced by another lesser canary. And I know it's still him because he smiles at me. Teenie is now standing on my dad's foot, so he swings her through on his leg. She's not said a word, but doesn't need to. A tubular chrome dining table with a smoked glass top and six seats around it gleams where the old wooden fold-out stood. Who is going to sit there? Gone is the brown and orange three-piece suite, and glowing anew is white leatherette with steel-inlaid arms that promise to feel cold against your arms and legs. The walls are white, white, white. The psychedelic carpet and the orange rug, the shape and colour of the sun, are nowhere to be seen. We appear to be wading through a pool of blood. The carpet's American shadow, announces Mary, proudly sweeping her hand. It matches my nails, very 80s. Your daddy loves it, don't you, Glenn? I flinch hearing my dad's name used. Mary wakes us wash our hands as if our mum didn't teach us and sits us all down at the table before cramming her nails into oven gloves to rescue a bubbling dish which she plonks on a placemat, another new thing. Strings of cheese stretch from dish to plate as Mary serves my dad, then me, then Teeny. She then shakes something that smells like feet over my plate. 
It's Parmesan, she says, in a take-your-medicine tone. For your lasagna. Lass. <laughs> Lass, like, so vulgar to laugh at your own work. <laughs> Hate myself right now. Lass, like a girl, and Agni, like one half of Cagney and Lacey. After a few mouthfuls, she asks if we like Nouvelle Cuisine, and we nod, because it really does beat watery tatties and greasy mince. My mum loves us, but she doesn't love cooking, and cooking really doesn't love her. Mary finishes her tiny portion of lasagne and gets up to put an LP on the new stereo unit. My coat of many colours, she trills in time with Dolly Parton, and Charlie hops from perch to perch. When we're sure she's going to sing the whole song, we all stop eating to watch, and she takes to a stage only she can see. My dad can't take his eyes off her. None of us can. She finishes right along with Dolly, and while the record crackles round to the next song, we cannot help but clap our hands, even teeny. Next up, it's nine to five, and Charlie sings too, and Mary grabs my dad, and they're dancing. He never danced with my mum, not even when she threatened to jump on his two left feet, and here he is dancing with this Mary, and he's rubbish, and I'm mortified. But I want to dance too, and then Teeny gets up, and we're all out of breath, and our lasagna must be cold. When the next song starts, Dolly is spelling out a word, letter by letter, like my mum taught me on the floor of this very room with her mills and boons. You're there first, aren't you? I'm the best reader in my class, and I've got my library card already. D-I-V-O. And my mind is racing to the end of the word that Mary and Dolly are singing when my dad shouts, Mary, and nearly hits her as he lunges at the stereo, pushing the arm off the record just as Dolly says, R-C-E. I think, is, is that enough? That, that's quite a long time, isn't it? Oh, you can applaud. Spontaneously, that's fine. So, uh, normally in these situations, I'm, I'm interviewing somebody, but as I am me, um, it's going to be awkward being like this. Uh, 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 you can ask me questions if you have any questions um, about the book or the reading that I've just done. They can be any questions you want in this environment. Do I miss anything about that? Um, I miss the, the really brilliant dark sense of humour that people have. Um, there's the, sometimes you know things will go wrong, and I live in Brighton now, which is sort of where I want to be, and I'm very happy. Um, but things will go wrong in, peop wrong in people's lives that I think are relatively perfect, and they'll moan and they'll go on about it, and they'll go into therapy, and I'm like, shut the fuck up! <laughs> like you know, there are endless hilarious stories in the Motherwell Times about chip pan fires that somehow end up being quite funny. Um, so you know, I like I call it Glasgow Gothic, and I miss that 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 sense of humour. I do. I miss that. I miss things that are gone, so there's not much point missing them. Um, I miss people who are gone again but I feel like there is a point in missing them but um, I was very glad to get away I couldn't be myself there I couldn't be myself there I don't think I don't think I go back and be myself there now either yes yeah So the question was about memory in the book, and there being a lot of detailed stuff, and you know how how do you, how I guess how do you remember it, and how do you how do you deal with remembering it? I think that the the, the common sort of m mistake about memoirs is, is that is that people think that it is that it is remembering it is kind of going now what was that where was I what was going on and 
you know, everybody's memory is subjective, particularly after several gins, um, and we will all have a different memory of tonight. We will all have a different memory of our journey here. We'll have a different memory of, of your journey home. You know, two people in the same car will have a, a different memory of the same argument. Um, so, you know, I, I called my sister up to ask her about a thing in the book that's actually not in the book, but I called her up to ask her about it, and I was talking, and she was really quiet on the phone to the point where I thought she'd hung up. Um, and she said, you know, not only do I not remember that thing happening, she said, I don't remember living in that house. And I said, but we lived in that house for three years. I can tell you what your bedroom looked like. And she was like, nope, just don't remember it. And I thought, if I can forget a house, you know, what else can I forget? Um, so I don't claim that, that, that it's a perfect recollection. What it is is a reliving. That's what I realized I had to do. And I'll be talking to Janice about this in a wee bit, which is, which is you know, how do you go back to the past? How do you visit the, the past, your own past, and come back to the present um, with a story that you can share with other people? Because that's what it is, it's a story. Um, but in order to get to that story, I had to relive a lot of stuff. And a lot of the stuff that's in the book is really hard and really difficult. And the reliving of it was stuff that I put off. I mean, whoa, did I find stuff to do to put off some of the things that I didn't want to write about. I really for years actually found things to do other work you know and things in the house much repainting um and on un elaborately planned meals um but you know oh i've got to the end of the day i can't possibly start to right now you know um and um and uh, but when when i did start to kind of get into that i found that actually once i'd opened the door it was unstoppable it was just there were days where i would sit there and eight hours would go by and you get up and you and you go right you feel like you've actually been time traveling. You feel like you've been in the past. And it's therefore very distracting when people say things to you like, what do you want for dinner? And you just go, oh, you know, like that. And that, 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 was really what it, that was really what it was like. It was that kind of intense. Um, which means I realize that's lucky. I'm lucky that that happened. Yes, question and then question. Take this one first, the lady sitting down. Yes. Yes. So, well, what I, I, I mean, again, I'll talk about this with Janice in a wee minute, but I, I put off for a very long time even starting this book because I was scared of what people would think and say and do. Um, how they would judge me uh, if I gave them information. It's like you feel like you're putting a weapon in somebody's hand and holding it to your head and saying, you know, go on. Um, and nobody's pulled that trigger. I have had not a single negative outcome yet touch wood uh, from, from this book from anybody in my family. Um, that's not to say that there weren't anxieties and things about it that were difficult um, before, during, and after. So I'll tell you, so, um, I mean, I, if my granny Mac who would who would you know sort of say you know don't air your dirty washing and you know all that kind of you know she's full of great sayings what's far you doesn't go by you you know that was hard to the classic nth degree and um she was the cleaner for the chapel hall and um, because she thought that was going to get her even closer to god and and um and she was incredible and she was sort of sat by her window she moved house so she could be closer to the to the chapel um and she had this big bunch of keys and she'd sit in the window and look at all these people going by and and, and tell you their stories which is one of the things that happens as a kid so you know it'd be like oh that's 
that's Anne, she's at the Battered Wives, you know, and you're like, well, do I need to, should I know this? And she, don't tell us so, don't tell us so, you know, and that's Jim, he's in for the AA, mm. did you see him at the pub, you know, and you're like, what, you know, and so I think I sort of got a kind of storytelling thing from her, but also this kind of weird thing where, you know, you know stuff, but you're not supposed to tell it, and I felt very much like I knew a lot of stuff that I wasn't supposed to, supposed to share, and I did go through the pretense of asking both my parents for permission before I wrote this book. I do think I would just have written it anyway, but I wanted to ask them so that they could at least not throw that at me. Um, and my mum said, do what you want, son. It's your life. Change the names. Um, and, <laughs> and it's totally true. And I have. Brilliant. Um, and, my, and my dad said, I'll never talk to you again. Um, and I thought, oh, right, okay. That's quite tough. Um, but he, he, is, he is talking to me. He doesn't actually say very much. Um, and when he does speak, it's very... And you have to really listen, like, when waves, whale sound travels in water and these big waves. And I listen, and eventually I catch this whole sonar. And it's like, he's, he has said something. And, um, and so my mum recently turned 60, and I went to... In fact, just after the book was published, my mum turned 60, and I went up um, for my mum's birthday, and it was lovely. Um, and my dad was taking me to the airport afterwards. And lots of things were strange about this journey. We were travelling, first of all, along a road that my dad had helped to build a very long time ago. Um, but the road had been changed. As you get to Glasgow, there's a new road. Um, and so it was like, really, you know, this story was writing itself, that we were on a road that my dad had written, but that had since been changed. Um, and, um, and we drove by this graveyard, and I said, is that where my granny and grandpa are, his, his parents? And I sort of couldn't remember because I haven't been to see them. Um, bad. Um, and, um, and he said, aye. And we, we drove on for a while. And I said, so are you, are you still not talking to them? And he was like, no. Nah. <laughs> and he continued driving. And I said, but you know that they're dead and that there's no satisfaction to be derived from not talking to dead people. Like, that is a thing. You know, that can't be, you know. And he, and he, and he, said, if he said, I must get this right. He said, if I knew then what I knew now, I'd have stopped talking to them a long time ago. <laughs> And I said, but you did not talk to them for the last 20 years of their lives. That was quite a long time. And he was like, I am. And, um, and, and, and so I said, um, speaking of things that we're not talking about, um, there, you know, have you read my book? And, and he was like, no. I said, okay. I said, well, I want you to know that I don't need you to read it because I didn't write it to make a point to you um, or to anybody else or to get ang even or be angry. I, I just wrote it because I had to. I said, but you should know that there is a lot in the book that you don't know, and some of it might upset you. Um, and he said, I know what I don't know. <laughs> it's totally wrong. You can hear this conversation. Going. I said, how do you know what you don't know? And he said, I read it in the Daily Mail. Because... <laughs> 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 totally classic, serialised in the Daily Mail. So um, anyway, yeah, so that was that. So that's a very long answer to your question. Needlessly, sorry, Ella. That's a really good question. Why did I not write it as a novel? Um, well... Um, we'll, we'll talk to our novelist about that after the break. Um, but um, the, the thing about a novel is, is that it's true, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a... It should feel true. For a novel to be persuasive, it should feel true. There should be a truth in it. That's how we... That's, you know, we give it to people, we recommend novels because we love them and they, and they resonate with some truth inside us. And the ones that don't work are the ones that feel made up. Um, and um, this book is not made up. Um, this book is true. 
um, and I really wanted um, to make a point about it being true because I think the thing that happens to you when you're a child, if you have a difficult childhood, the bad things happen, and actually even if you're an adult and these things happen, we're told that we're not supposed to talk about them um, and we're, that we're supposed to keep them th secret and also that if we do tell the truth, people will tell us that we're lying. And there was a part of me that felt when this book was published, I was waiting for somebody to tell me um, that I was lying and um, that didn't happen. A couple of, of the well-meaning women of Surrey who reviewed the book thought, well, this can't possibly be true because it's so awful and you just think, oh, shut the fuck up. Um, it is, and I wish it wasn't. Um, but that, you know, that's, that's just, that's just kind of you know, the truth of it. But I was actually offered a deal for the book as a novel, um, which I turned down because um, I wanted to make a, a, a point about it being a, a true thing. Um, that was important to me. How the question was, how has my perspective changed on my family since I've written it? Um, I think I probably feel better disposed towards them than I did at the beginning of it. I think in the, in the, in the doing of the thing, I feel less angry. Um, not that I was raging to start off with. I'm evidently not a person of great rage. Um, but... Um, don't push me, um, but um, but 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 you know I do feel I do feel I do feel better disposed towards them, more more inclined to forgive things, not people who were evil, but people who made mistakes. Because I actually, in the doing of it, I realised, oh, actually, I'd made quite a lot of mistakes as well, and I was really concerned that I not I hate memoirs where the the central character um, is perfect. You know, they've never made a mistake. I have made so many mistakes, and I wanted to put lots of them in the book. So I thought if I was putting in their mistakes, I had to put in my mistakes um, to sort of even it out. But I feel, I mean, if we're thinking about specific family members, um, I sort of actually feel a bit sorry for my parents because when I think about the breakup of their relationship, it was actually to do with grief and the loss of my sister. Um, and it's only a small point that I make in the book because I don't want to dwell on it, but I... I, I so much of what happened, I think if a baby hadn't died, so much of it wouldn't have happened. And so that, I suppose, makes me feel towards them kinder. That's not a bad thing to feel kinder, I don't think. No, it's not. I'll take a couple more questions, and then we'll go with Janice. Lady here, and then man, right, and then one more question, and we're done. Yes. How does I feel about when Thatcher died? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, that was a complicated moment. First of all, if I'm really, 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 really honest about it, um, I did some really chronic food poisoning, um, and I was feeling really weak and pathetic, and then I got this news, and I sort of found myself bursting into tears, and I thought, this is ridiculous. I need to get a grip. I am crying about this. And I got all these phone, phone, uh, phone calls and text messages. I was on the phone to you, I was on the phone to you, um, and I was like, what is this, what is this, what is this, and it was messages, and it was stuff like, wow, your publicist is incredible, <laughs> where were you on Monday night, you know, and, so <laughs> and you're like, well, I also, you know, and I sort of think, well, you know, I, I, I've been thinking about her impact on me for a very long time, and the things that she did wrong, the things that were unkind, the things that were, that were 
uh, ungenerous, the destruction that she wrote on the community that I grew up in, um, the very, very bad things that she did, um, and also some of the things that I, the good that I could find in what she had done, um, the messages about being your own person, about it being more important where you're going than where you're from was something that I thought was important. And also just the sheer bloody-mindedness of her being a survivor, you know, and I thought that's what I am too, you know. And as a child, I really clearly remember at the beginning of the book when she, when she emerged from that rubble and everybody being like, what, what the fuck will it take to kill this woman? Why will she not die, you know? And people genuinely, and I thought, well, who is this woman that everybody wants to die? Because I'd only just really found out about dying and it seemed quite serious. Um, and, and, and so I was quite fascinated by the fact that people were, people were fascinated by this woman and therefore it was like a mongoose-like fascination, you know. It's like, why is everybody interested and why are they all talking about her, first of all? And then later on I was able to sort of see some positive things in what she says. But does that mean I would have voted for her? No, it doesn't mean that. It just means that I think she's more complicated and her her impact on my childhood is much more complicated. Like the closure of the steelworks, where my dad worked. You know, every night we had this second sunset. From people, you remember that from Lanarkshire. You remember the sky going, you know, red, orange, white. It's bright enough to read by. Everybody grew up under that sky. That sunset was actually beautiful. And I found a picture the other week, and it was like Turner. It was actually a beautiful thing caused by ugly industrial processes that my dad was a part of that were really dangerous. I used to worry about him all the time. I used to think, is he going to be one of those men that you hear about that falls into the furnace that they push under and the women end up burying empty coffins and all the rest of it. And so a part of me was actually glad when the Ravenscraig was closed. And it sounds terrible to say that because my dad was going to be all right. And that's how, you know, I think children are unselfish. They think of a small world. My dad was going to be all right. And then also as I got older, do you know what? I don't want to work in the steelworks. I want to read books and maybe write books. And that doesn't seem suited to me. So, um, so it's all kind of very complicated. And so I find it very annoying um, that when she died, there was this, all these preconceived opinions were launched from left and right. Oh, she's the best thing that happened to this country after Winston Churchill and sliced bread. And oh, did you know she invented soft scoop ice cream? How many times did we get that factoid? Um, and, then, and then, oh, she's, you know, she's evil. She, you know, she, she took away the milk and yada, yada, yada. So that was all a bit boring. One, there was one more person at the back. Oh, it's the gentleman sitting there. Yes, you. Uh huh. Oh, did oh did they did, did the audience get me? Oh, that's a good question. Well, actually, Rowan Pelling is here somewhere, I think, and Rowan Rowan is at the back. Rowan 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 did the the very first interview. Janice did the very second interview, so I'm keeping my cards close to my chest. But Rowan did the very first interview with me, and I think they got it. There were thi we had to translate things. Yeah, people got it. Yeah, yeah, they did. They, they got it, but there were certain things that you had to explain, not just the language. I did also have to do a, a, a glossary for some people at certain points. Um, and, um, and also having to explain to people, and we'll talk about this with Maggie, having to explain to people about sectarian violence is really complicated because they look at you like you are mad. You know, and I was, and I'm a child of a mixed marriage, and they're like, "Well, you don't look very brown." <laughs> you know, <coughs> and I'm like, "Well, actually, my mum's a Catholic and my dad's a Protestant," and they're like, "Oh, what does that mean?" You know, <laughs> and you know, bear in mind that I, I, I grew up being told that 
that Catholics weren't Christians and that Protestants weren't Christians by both sides of my family and going to ch church and chapel every Sunday because I was a very religious child. That didn't work out. But anyway, so, um, or maybe it did, I don't know. But um, in any case, you know, having to explain that was really hard. And you say to people, you know, about, uh, about going to Protestant schools and Catholic schools and, you know, and Rangers and Celtic and... There's a bit in the book where all my friends who are mostly Catholic are all cheering because Celtic have won and they're all shouting, FTQ, fuck the Queen. And I'm like, oh, what, what am I supposed to do? And I just went, FTP. And before I said the next bit of it, they were all kicking the shit out of me, you know. <laughs> and, and uh, do you know, the sensation was that nobody really was acting because of their own free will. Everybody was doing what they were expected to do. And it's really hard. So that is a thing that is actually quite hard to explain because it's an important dimension of the book. And... I think some audiences might just sort of think that that's not very important, but I think, I think we all know that it is. So anyway, that is really enough of me. Please welcome Janice Galloway.